I don't care if it is the end of February, it is still a gorgeous day, and I'm glad that you're here today, and I'm glad that we are here to worship God together. I'm glad that we are here to learn, to grow, and above all, to praise God who's given us so very much. We've been looking at some some questions that we, I just kind of suppose are general questions that, that run through our minds, that kind of filter around from time to time. I want to talk about one that I think is is very personal, one that I think the devoted Christian has good reason to ask of himself or herself, and that's the question of, is my worship really worship? Am I really worshiping God? When we read that passage at the beginning of worship this morning, we, we noted that Paul had some challenges to help the church in Corinth and dealing with things that they were dealing with as they came together, even to partake of the Lord's Supper. In fact, just prior to what we read in our passage, he said, you know, basically, you guys are coming together, but you really can't take of the Lord's Supper the way you're doing this because your worship and your approach to it is not good. But they aren't the first. I was thinking about an occasion that goes back, and we'll notice 1 Samuel 15, 22 in just a few moments. Back to the time when Saul was king of Israel, and as king, and as a king, and the first king of Israel, Saul felt the necessary to really take care of business, pull things together, and there were a lot of good things about Saul, some real problems too. But on that occasion, as he waited for the old priest to come and offer the sacrifice before they could go and get into and engage in conflict with their enemies, Saul waited. There was an appointed day for Samuel to arrive as the priest to offer the sacrifice, but the day came and he wasn't there and he wasn't there and he really expected him and he waited and he waited. And as the day wore on, people began to filter away from him and Saul began to worry about his army and begot the, the support of his people and so forth. And finally, to appease the people, to appease the people, Saul decided, well, I'll just take care of it and I'll do the, lead the worship in this occasion. But it wasn't appropriate under their direction from God to do that. And about that time, Samuel arrived, arrived, and he says, you didn't do what was right. You should have waited. Well, that was the beginning of some problems for Saul, but Saul still wanted to take care of business. And a little bit later, Saul was sent as the king to take care of the Amalekites. The time had come, they're to be destroyed. And God had sent him through Samuel had sent him the message. He was to go and to take care of the business, and he went and he fought, but he didn't really do everything that God intended him to do. In fact, bringing back the king, Agag, and, and some others, and bringing back animals and so forth. And as he's coming back, the Lord sent Samuel to, to confront Saul. And he said, why didn't you do what God sent you to do? And Saul said, but I did. And he said, well, wait a minute. What is this with all these animals that you brought back? I keep hearing the bleeding of sheep and so forth. And so you didn't destroy everything that was there. And that was the instruction that was there. And we may question all the whys and wherefores, but that was the instruction. And when Samuel asked him about the animals, <coughs> Saul claimed that they were to be used for worship, for sacrifice in their worship. And in response to what Saul said there, and as Saul was, I think, trying to take care of business in the way that he thought it ought to be, as he had earlier, 
In response, Samuel offers, I think, one of the great teachings of the Bible toward our understanding of God, our relationship toward God, and even our worship. For he posed kind of a rhetorical question and gave his own answer to it immediately. For he says, and it's recorded there in 1 Samuel 15, 22, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. If you don't get it, it means you can't make up for what you did wrong by trying to do what you think ought to be right. Be careful about that. I tie it into worship, and that's what our question comes down, is my worship really worship? And I believe that the human concept of worship has always been in a certain amount of flux from the time of Cain and Abel, from Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, right down to the present, has always been in kind of flux and there's always been kind of an evolving situation in worship in the minds of people. But I believe it may be true that in the late 20th century to the, through this early part of the 21st century, in this first nearly 20 years, of the, or first 20 years of the 21st century, I think we have seen the most rapid evolution and change to date in the concept of worship. Think about it. A little over a hundred years ago, there were great struggles as to whether a piano could be used for the purpose, in the worship, for the purpose of aiding the pitiful singing in some congregations. They weren't with us this morning, by the way. For the pitiful singing in some of the congregation, it would surely be a help, and so some wanted to bring in a piano or a like instrument into that worship. Well, today... Today we find that large bands play to the interest and enjoyment of the people in attendance and worship is often judged is often judged by the quality of the music that people feel like encourages or uplifts them by being a part of an assembly whose stated purpose is about worship. And of course there are other aspects of worship that continue to be pressed into the changing thinking. I, I, I understand that. But I think music is the one that stands out and, and is most notable in these situations. But I'm just trying to tell you, we have seen the mindset of people change in the concept of what it really means to worship. So I'm telling you, I think, I believe, there is a worthwhile question. And that question ought to come to mind, is my worship really worship? Is it what it pretends or purports to be? Maybe that's a better word than pretend, what it purports to be. It really is, I think, a personal matter and needs our own personal consideration. For while it is important that we get things right as a congregation, as a church or congregation, it is even more important that we get it right on the personal level. For when we get it right on the personal level, we're going to bring it right to the congregational level. Often we want to judge the congregational level and not judge the personal level. I think we need to go back and judge the personal level first. And so I want to offer to you this morning, I want to offer to you this morning some things that we can each examine about worship and make application to our own lives. The first thing I want you to note is that there is a doing 
to worship. There is a doing of worship. There is a recognizable physical involvement when a person worships God. It's not just something that takes place in your head or as a spectator. It's not something you come and watch and have others do for you. It is something that you do. From the beginning of time, there were correct actions to follow, things that you were supposed to do as you went to worship. Go back to Genesis 4 and read about Cain and Abel and them bringing their sacrifices that they were to bring to God. And we find one is acceptable and one is not acceptable. We can go into thinking about that at some time, but it points out there is an activity that is directly involved in worship from the very beginning of time. For worship by its very definition is a humble act of bowing response to God. It is also measurable. It is a measurable activity. You can understand it. You can apply it. You can see what you're doing. It is not something that we just wonder, well, I, did I do that? Did I do that right? No, it's given to us. From the Old Testament, we read about the lambs without spot or blemish. We can read about correct fire with Nadab and Abihu later. We can read about how accurately they measured their incense that was used for worship. That's how the tradition that Jesus talks about later would deal with. But they had measured out the incense and exactly the proportions that were to go into it that were to be used in the worship. Now, you might use whatever you want to at home, but there were certain amounts that were there, as with the animals and other things. All I'm just simply saying is there were correct actions that went into their worship and the, what they brought to it, what they did with it. And if you read through the Exodus and Leviticus in particular, you read about all these intricacies of things that were involved and what they were to do and what they were to not do, who was to touch, who was to not touch, and so forth in that regard. And I know much of that is Old, I know that is Old Testament, and much of what I'm pointing to has to do with Old Testament, but it tells us something about the concept and the concept of worship. For while there are some actions that have changed, and we recognize that the worship and an assembly of worship like we have today was a little bit foreign to what they had as Jews under the Old Testament law, it still is active actions that are pointed toward God. It is a go and do. Now the go may be a little bit sketchy in our concept in some ways. But there is a going to worship. Whether it is simply at being at home and going to that place in your mind or actually going to another place, there is a going involved. I always think about Abraham in Genesis 22 as he took Isaac and some servants. They went along a ways and at a certain point they see the mountain at the distance and, and Abraham tells the servants, you wait here. For he says, the lad or the young man and I will go, will go and worship and return. Now there's a lot in that statement that we could think about in terms of he seems to infer that Isaac will be back too, even knowing what he's going to do. But he was to go and to worship. It's not something that is just, just simply a part of the ordinary routine of your life. It is a determined action is what I'm saying. It's not necessarily a geographic going always but it is a determined, I am going to worship. I am doing the worship. I'm setting aside the time and to worship. It is a purposeful 
act that I am undertaking when I, I worship God in this way. And much in the way that Samuel would later, after his disgust with Saul, goes to Bethlehem, finds Jesse and his family, and he went there for the purpose of the sacrifice, to worship God, going and setting aside that time and that place to worship. And I understand, yes, it may be just the going into a state of mind. As John would say in the Revelation, chapter 1 and verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He was setting aside in his mind. He was determining to do something in his mind. That's the going involved. But there is also the doing, and that doing is definite action. Whether it's group or whether it's individual, it is not just casual, not thinking. It is actually doing it and doing it on purpose. I think about what we read there in 1 Corinthians 11. As I said a little bit earlier than the reading we shared this morning, back up to verse 20, he says, you know, you come together, you can't even partake of the Lord's Supper because you're, you're not doing the actions right. In other words, they were getting caught up in, in what they were eating, and one was eating, another was not having, and so forth, and they were trying to mix that up with worship, and it just was not appropriate. Or I think about later in the 14th chapter as he writes to those same people in 1 Corinthians 14. He tries to describe the orderly nature of their assembly and worship and not let it become a jumbled mess of this one jumping up and that one jumping up and telling what they've got on their mind. In fact, verse 40 is very plain. He said, let it be done decently and in order. It is to be something that is purposeful in its direction. Now, we can, we can make it so decently and in order that we take the life out of it. I understand that. But it needs to be an orderly, thoughtful process that you're going through as you worship. And we put ourselves into the worship of God. And Jesus, of course, did and taught that very thing. So there is a doing of worship. Secondly, there is a direction of worship. And these are not necessarily in order of importance. But maybe it, it is to some degree. There is a direction of worship. Worship is pointed at God. We are worshiping God. I know you can worship anything in the world, but we're talking about worshiping God. You notice in the first of the Ten Commandments, in the first two of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, what is it about? It's about not setting up an idol. It's about there only being one God. That's what he's talking about. No other gods for me. Not to worship idols. Not to set up any graven images. It is about God is the, is the object. God is the direction of our worship. And so worship is pointed at God. And maybe we were reminded of that great story in, in Daniel chapter 3 of, of those, those three young men, apparently young men still at that point, those three men who seemed like they were almost alone in their unwillingness to bow before that great image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. They refused to bow before it because it would give the sense, even if in their minds they w were not worshiping, it would give the sense that they were worshiping an idol in that regard. Worship is to be pointed at God. Jesus made it very plain. You shall worship the Lord your God. And he's the only one that you are to render service to in uh, Matthew 4. Jesus would not bow. He would not bow to Satan. That's verse 10. Deuteron he draws from Deuteronomy 6.13 when he says, It is written, you're only going to bow and worship and serve God. And so with that in mind, if worship is pointed at God, we understand that worship is, along with the idea of doing, it is a 
performance. It is a performance with an audience. We are here in an assembly for the dedicated purpose as we come here to, to put on a performance for God. Now somebody says, well, I don't like the word performance. Well, there's nothing wrong with the word performance. I know we think about actors on a stage and pretending to be something that they're really not. But a performance means putting your best out there and doing it the best you can for the audience or whoever is to see it. We've all done that. You perform when you answer questions on a test for a teacher or for a class. A performance is anything you do before somebody else in answer to a need or to address that need in some way or another. Worship is a performance for an audience. As an entertainer tries to give an audience what will be pleasing to them, we try to bring, or we should be trying to bring, uh, and give to God what we know will please Him, will honor Him in response to what He has done for us. It is a careful response, and not just anything will do. The Old Testament prophet Micah asked the question, with what shall I come before the Lord? You know, rivers of oil and great sacrifices and all these things. He said, he has told you, O oh man, do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Then you know what you bring before God. There is a direction to our worship, and it is to be done before and toward God in that regard. Thirdly, there is a heart of worship. And I'm not talking about the blood pump inside of the body. We talk about heart all the time, and I think we know what we're talking about. It is that emotional, determined aspect that lies within each of us. With that in mind, we have to understand that actions of worship are empty unless they have heart. Words are just word until the heart gives them meaning. Anybody, anyone can just call to say, I love you. But it only means something when it comes from an applied heart. You know there are those who touch you when they say, I love you, because you know where it comes from. Several years ago, it became fairly popular for guys to run around and say, hey, I love you, man, I love you, man, taken from the movies and so forth. I love you, man. Well, it was just a joke. I mean, yeah, they cared for each other, that's, but that's just a joke. But we understand those who tell us, I love you that really mean it, don't we? We recognize that. We know that. We understand that. And Jesus drew from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah very plainly to take note that words are just words, even if they're words of praise, but the actions showed whether they were really in it or not. This people honor me with their mouths and praise me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Matthew 15, 7, 8, and 9. Actions cannot substitute for the intentions of the heart. Yes, I understand it takes both. Paul would write again to that church in Corinth in the 13th chapter. He said, you can do all these wonderful things, you know, even if you've got great gifts and great abilities and you put them out there in front of people, but if there is no heart in them, if there's no love involved, they're just a clanging noise. He said, you can give great gifts, give your body away. But if there's no love in it, you notice it profits you in particular nothing. First three verses, 1 Corinthians 13. Or listen to this. Deuteronomy 4 and verse 29. As, the, as 
Moses talking to the Israelites, from, but from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him. Now listen to this. If you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul, you will find him. Actions cannot be substitutes for intentions of the heart. There must be a heart in worship. It's not just something we come and do because we're required to do it. It's not something we come and do just because that's what we've always done. It's not something we come and do just to appease God. It is something we do because it is the heart of who we are. We worship. And then let me give you one more. There is the fellowship of worship. Because worship is an interchange, a sharing from one to another. We often associate the word fellowship with a common meal for a congregation. We're going to have our fellowship on Sunday the 14th or 21st or whatever it happens to be. We're going to have our fellowship. People say, well, let's go back to the fellowship. We speak about the fellowship hall. I've got to tell you, the greatest fellowship that we have as members of a congregation is right here, right now probably. Yeah, we eat meals together, love that, and that's a good and a positive thing. But when we come together and we join together in songs and prayer and study of the Word and giving and, and the Lord's Supper, when we gather together in those things, we are in the greatest fellowship we will find. I know the Word is broader than just that, but worship is a fellowship within itself. For we communicate in fellowship in many ways, and cooperating in this way is a way that benefits everyone who is involved and among the most important aspects of what we do is sharing in fellowship with one another and, as I said, most of all, with God. A primary rule for our lives and worship should be fellowship. Just like the primary rule of, of driving is that you have to share the road with other people. We are sharing fellowship with one another because in worship we share. And I know, of course, in public worship we share with others. As I've said, we're here, we sing together, we pray together and all of that. But it's even bigger than that, isn't it? That's what Paul was dealing with there when I mentioned 1 Corinthians 14. But it's about what we bring to God because we share with God. We share with God when we bring what we believe is worship, what we understand to be worship before God, what we've drawn from his word to, to comprehend the sense of worship. And in Hebrews 13 and verse 5, the writer refers to what we do as a sacrifice of praise. Can you put that on there? Put that label on it. Sacrifice of praise. So there is a fellowship in worship as we share with one another, but above all, we share with God. We do it in heart. We do it directed at him. And we do it because there is a doing of worship. I want you to think about your worship. I want you to think about it. And I think it's a great question. Is my worship really Worship. I think we need to ask ourselves that. I think we need to look at what we do and, and bring it as the best. Because in worship, in worship, we consciously, determinedly, purposely draw ourselves closer to God. Now the measure 
of whether your worship can be defined as worship may be known only to you and to God, I guess. But the intention, the intention of your worship is going to show. It's going to show in your action, but you're also going to know it within yourself. The root, one of the reasons I think it's such a great question is not only are, are we pleasing God by what we're doing, and I think sometimes we pray a lot, Lord, we want to make sure we're pleasing you in what we're doing. But there is also the question is asked because I sincerely want to do right. We want to be right. We want to do right because I believe we want and should want that connection through all these things, a fellowship with God. Is my worship really worship? It should be. It can be. It must be. We're going to sing a song. Let it be a song of encouragement to us all and remind us of what we share and what the, the blessings are that we have each and every day. But it's also a reminder of the invitation of our Lord in which we are drawn into that fellowship by the opportunity that comes through Him and through Him only and through His blood and obedience to His Word and that surrender of life that brings us in confession and repentance to baptism and, and brings us into that body as sins are washed away and we restored all new, brought to new in him in that great act and may we recognize how blessed we truly are if someone needs to respond this morning for that need or for another won't you please do so while we stand and while we sing together